0: Um, it's pretty incredible what the Pacific Northwest mm-hmm. has to offer and, and really plugging you in with, you know, lots of farm visits, lots of um, manufacturer visits. Actually, like, okay, these are the purveyors you can get this from. This is the Real Food, Real People podcast.
1: This week, we hear about the personal journey of a guy who became a sous chef at one of Seattle's top restaurants. But that's not what he set out to do. And it's an incredible story. We actually had such an amazing conversation that I've split this into two parts. So this week is the first part with Nels Brisbane and him telling his personal story from sports to science to art, all relating to food, and now how he's become passionate about farming And farmers, and he's trying to change our regional food system. An incredible story. Take a listen and also make sure to catch next week as well as we continue this story with Nels Brisbane. So basically, you started off as a wrestler and you wanted to be a scientist.
0: Yeah, yeah. Was kind of the starting point, right? That was the starting point, yes. So uh, what, what were you doing? You were
1: down in California?
0: Yeah, yeah. So I started um, down in California. I was at UC Davis, um, which is just outside of Sacramento. Um, I was there. I was studying biology. Um, like I said, I was, a, I was there as a wrestler, which was fantastic. I loved um, being a part of the team. Uh, but then shortly after starting, um, well, about a year... After, after my the first season, um, springtime some, at some point, uh, it was 2010, the financial crisis had really started to put the squeeze now. It had been a couple of years, so now the financial crisis was really squeezing on the universities. Um, we had just gotten a brand new dean, and she decided that, um, well, she, she needed to create some funds, so she cut uh, Women's Crew, which needed a lot of funding and then mm-hmm. because of title nine she had to find men's sports to cut as well mm. and so she ended up dropping uh, men's wrestling men's swimming and diving um i know there were yeah anyway so she had to you know free up some funds and so she dropped the program which was you know a bit of an identity crisis for all of those athletes we yeah. had people you know transfer out we had um you know people deal with it in in all sorts of ways it was it i mean uc davis is um for its biological sciences is top 25 in the nation at the time they've actually moved up since then and so um for me athletics while absolutely you know uh, crazy about them were were an avenue to get into fan you know to leverage towards great athletic or great academics and so Mm -hmm. i decided to stay at davis they you know the university wasn't totally brutal to us they let us keep our athlete our our athlete status so we still got a lot of the benefits of being athletes in a a college but even um, though you weren't even though we weren't practicing and so yeah so we i mean we continued to practice for a while because at first it was kind of we um you know there was everything from writing letters to you know doing some demonstrations and having other coaches come in and try to support and do a lot of lobbying to try to get them to reverse this action but um never none of it stuck and so so then I was um in school but but still even during that time um you know out of uh Linden now and having to feed myself for the first time, you know, and, and then as an athlete, you're always, you know, there's that next level of like, okay, well, how do I feed myself? Well, Um, how do I make sure I'm getting all the nutrition that I need? Um, I was also, they were trying to basically get me to uh, move up a weight class or be larger in my weight class. Um, I mean, wrestling is always this tight dance of you want to be the largest possible without bumping up into that next weight class, and so a lot of a lot of like body manipulation, a right? lot of body manipulation, and so it's so it's like um, actually it was really interesting while I was working at um, Washington State. One of the PhD students there, she was a nutritionist and had spent time at the Olympic Training Center in Colorado, and and just a really, really intelligent, um, lady who we always had a lot of really nerdy conversations together, but she had always kind of talked about that. Um, she worked with the wrestlers specifically and just how obsessed they were with nutrition. Um, mm-hmm. she was a dietitian and all these other versus some of the other athletes that, you know, they're very concerned about diet and all these different things, but you know, if their weight fluctuates, if they're all, they, they've got a yeah. lot more to play with versus wrestlers are very, very tight, very yeah. like, she said it was the only team that was basically a hundred percent organic. Like they only ate organic foods. Mm-hmm. They, you know, were very concerned with what they ate. I was like, yeah, that's wrestlers. <laughs> um, so it was while down at Davis, um, I was, you know, studying sciences, um, was focused. I mean, at the time I had some very like everything from, uh, from like physical therapy to, you know, something in the medicines to, you know, very much thinking about health from the traditional, um, like, pharmacological standpoint. Yeah, um, yeah. But then, as we, uh, I don't know exactly why, to, I think it was just like the nutrition class, um, Nutrition 101. It, we had a very, very well regarded professor. She was, um, you know, published all around the country, considered in the best of her field. And, and um, me and a couple of the other athletes took her class. Um, and and it was amazing to me how little there was of like substance on some level where it's like they're breaking things down into such, um, I mean, nutrition as a field is a very young field and, and nutritionists mm-hmm. would tell you this. I mean, it's only been around, like that's really been studied for, I mean, I can't remember when it exactly was founded, but it's less than a hundred years. So it's yeah. like, it's only been really studied and focused on um, for not very long. And, and you know, tests haven't been um, really great as well as like, you know, usually nutritional testing requires, um, you to like survey people and basically be like, well, what did you eat last week? And how did it make you feel? Like those are questions that people aren't really great at answering anyway. So, I mean, just the field of nutrition is is a really difficult field and, and it needs a lot more support and it needs a lot more help. But then also, um, just realizing like, oh, well, there's not, um, to, to it's, it's in its infant stages, and it doesn't. Um, it's not ready for like the application necessarily. And so it was. It was incredible to work with these incredible professors, and realize that like, oh, there's not a lot that I can actually like glean and and like put like use in my athletic you know endeavors. And other than it's like, well, eat whole foods, you know, and, and like eat more yep. vegetables and eat fruits and you know eat protein um, from good clean sources and stuff like that. So. That was interesting, which then kind of pushed me basically the lack of formula to to nutrition and, and realizing a like, oh, this is just a really complicated science. And, the, you know, there's the best people are working on this and we just don't know yet. Um, and coming to that point, um, I was also then living um, with uh, uh, my best best friend down there and, and he, a fellow wrestler um, and. And he was just like a phenomenal cook. Uh, he he grew grown up um, doing some cooking. He grew up in uh, in Japan and then moved mm. to Hawaii after that. And and was was just really a talent, very talented in the in the kitchen. And so, on you know, I, I had surrounded myself with just you know, we were all kind of weird wrestlers that were <laughs> focused on nutrition <laughs> and eating, and you know, not not like huge partiers. And um, and so we would like you know when most Saturdays people would be sleeping in and doing all this other stuff, we'd be like, you know, traveling 45 minutes to go to like our favorite Japanese grocery store and pick out like which type of soy sauce we wanted. And, and you know, what, what there's different
1: types of soy uh, sauce. Oh yeah. There's tons of different types of soy <laughs> sauce. Yeah.
0: <laughs> no, no, I was always like my favorite. So he'd be like, Oh, you can't put that soy sauce on fish. Or like you can't put, that's like a meat sauce or, you know, that's for beef and that's for vegetables and this sauce and that sauce. And, um, just like learning about, these um cultures that have such a deep um you know respect for their food and they've they've thought about it for a very long time and um in japan it's just kind of i mean there's a reason It, it is just kind of like a culinary mecca um and so he was a great teacher he was very passionate about um japanese cuisine and and so i learned a ton from him and then um you know, also being athletes, we were kind of competitive, and so we'd actually like prepare each other meals, trying to like one up each other constantly. <laughs> but it's so it's like the most friendly competition ever, right? Yeah, um, but but we did. We we were cooking all the time. We were cooking, you know, from scratch, and 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 realizing like what that does to your body and how how that makes you f- feel. Um, it was it was really impress. It was very eye opening for me, um, and and really just um opened up the kind of the pandora's box of like oh if you want to um influence how people eat then you have to be able to produce something delicious and that's kind of the baseline of of everything right and well, so
1: your starting point was science more though yeah absolutely but then really through this friend yeah brought in kind of the art yeah of it too right absolutely absolutely now in your position, mm-hmm. having been a chef in a fine dining restaurant in yeah. Seattle, yeah, huh and all the other things, but you've also you know researched with the university and done all the sciencey stuff. Yeah, Do you consider yourself more of a scientist or an artist?
0: Oh man, I would con. I, I I don't know. I th- I think I would consider myself more of a scientist. I, I think that the the art piece of it. um, mm is i mean it you you know i, I can't remember. it's like culinary school the first week they're like are you do you have a trade or like is cooking a trade or is it an art right mm-hmm. and i think that you know that was always whenever they wanted to you know waste class time they would bring up that topic and people would just go at it right and is it okay for it to be just a trade i i think so i think okay. the trades are like heavily under respected um but
1: what about at like culinary art school i'm right. sure that they wanted it to be understood on kind of a higher plane than right. just a just a job
0: right, right? yeah they did um it's an
1: artistic expression
0: right it and and i get that but but also i think it's like the trade of hospitality and the trade of being able to like take care of someone like that um i, I don't know i I've, I've thought about this i on some level i almost feel like like I mean, building a table, or you know, even there, like that can be a piece of art, right? And or you can build a table and have it just be totally utilitarian, right? Like, is mm-hmm. IKEA producing art? I would, <laughs> I think that would be like a hard yeah, point yeah. to argue. But you know, there's there's woodworkers out there who you know, there's tens of thousands of dollars for one of their table, right? And mm-hmm. um, and is that a piece of art, or are they just a really skilled tradesman? I, I don't know. I, on some level, I think that like for it to be like art has a certain like provocative nature to it and it's so it's not just um it's not just consumed or enjoyed it's it has to create thought and and so that there's a message yeah there's a message behind it and so it's um it it changes the the price point i think there can be an artful like there can be very artful food that costs you know ten dollars for a portion or whatever else Mm -hmm. and then it doesn't always have to be this really and it doesn't have to like instagram well to be art (laughs) right like so you were trained as a scientist
1: you got your degree in biology i did yeah at uc davis at uc davis yep and then were you gonna get a job doing biology stuff or you talked you mentioned also then going to culinary art school, which was yeah. the next step. What was between there and and what launched getting you married your... was in between there. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs>
0: that was my my three months nice. off in between the two. Um, no, so as I was, um, so I went for like a more traditional science school or for the more traditional biology tract, um, but with under the biology degree, um, UC Davis has gave a a good amount of latitude, you know, as far as what classes you wanted to take. Um, and while I was there kind of my, I'd been cooking more and more and was just like really loving it, really falling in love with the science of cooking and, and kind of the, the science of, of taste and perception. And, and I mean, you quickly get into psychology and and just kind of the, the fingers that cooking has all of it, you know, in all Mm -hmm. of these different pies of study. And, um, and so towards the end i really started you know creating more of a course towards food science Um, uc davis has a phenomenal brewing school and a phenomenal viticulture and enology school um, as well as a really um, highly regarded food science school and so i got to take a lot of those classes i got to you know study under one of the top Brewing scientists in the world got to go to France and study um, wine and Burgundy um, for a couple of uh, months. And, and like, wow. as well as just taking some really phenomenal food science classes and, and diving deep into that um, and really getting um, an understanding of, of not only uh, why we cook as a society, but, but how it's done and how those subtle manipulations of like, well, what's the Maillard reaction versus caramelization and why are they different? And you know, how, why does that matter? And how do you, how do you do things differently with them? Um, And so towards the end, the last two years, it was, I didn't want to add on a fifth year and actually switch to a food science uh, degree because I knew as soon as I started cooking, no one would actually care that I have a degree. (laughs) Um, So I just basically took, uh, you know, as much food science courses as I could while still getting, which they're both science you know there right. they, they had a lot of overlap so so I, I got to I left with a biology degree but had a heavy emphasis uh, on food as well you know, in that degree
1: so and only so three months later
0: you used yeah and so I when I graduated in June I knew I, I had already applied and and was starting um, cooking school that next fall so I had the summer off got married um, and so where was that uh, that was here in Seattle yeah okay. Seattle Culinary Academy um, we had moved back um, and it was, uh, I mean, we, we knew my wife had just finished her master's down, it, um, at, in Sacramento and, um, and we knew we wanted to move back to Washington. Uh, and, and so that was, um, that we, we chose, I chose the school here and it turned out to be a really incredible, incredible experience. Cause they, I mean, it's a community college program. There's no real you know, from the they—they, they, I mean, it's a beautiful school. They—they've done a really good job, um, you know, with the aesthetic of it. But, but the staff at the time was was just really phenomenal, and they went above and beyond their their job descriptions to make that experience fantastic for their students. And, um, and so, they really focused on sourcing on um, how to, you know, what the Pacific Northwest has to offer. Which, I mean. Um, it's pretty incredible what the Pacific Northwest Mm -hmm. has to offer and and really plugging you in with, you know, lots of farm visits, lots of, um, manufacturer visits, actually like, okay, these are the purveyors you can get this from. And so, um, you know, call Hank and he'll give it to you. Uh, you know, those, those really helpful pieces of information. Um, and, and so they, you know, it was it was a kind of a, a more modern, you know, it wasn't just classical French cooking. They, they did a really good job of being like, yeah, that's the classics. And this is kind of where we've taken it. And this is where you'll actually be cooking at this level. And, um, but really it was the plugging into the sourcing that was the most invaluable piece of information. And then the way that they just thought about sustainability and their and you know, it's like, well, if we're fishing for all this stuff, there should really be a policy of like everything you catch, you have to sell you know, or something, mm. you know, and so that you're not just fishing, you know, you catch five bycatch for every one regular fish you want or whatever, you know, whatever the numbers are. And it's okay. like, how do we think about utilizing that? And, how, you know, how do you think about food when it's not just like putting a piece of protein in the center of the plate? Like, you know, what if it's a tiny fish? Well, Americans don't love to eat tiny fish. So how do we prepare <laughs> that, you know, in a way yeah. that's, that's different and delicious? And again, like, has to make it over that deliciousness bar, and then if it's you know sustainable and well thought out and artistic or anything else, it has to make it above that. Because if it's not delicious, it's like people are just going to think you're a fraud. So,
1: how different was that culinary arts program because it was in Seattle, and was that part of the reason why you wanted to come back up here to Washington?
0: Yeah, I, I it was important. I mean, I wanted to be back in the Pacific Northwest, but. But again, like if you are trying to really, it it depends why you want to cook ultimately. It's like if you're cooking to show people how good you are at cooking, um, (laughs) then you can kind of, you should be able to do that anywhere because part of what would be so impressive is that I can go anywhere in the world and I can take any ingredient and I can make it delicious and it's about me. And that's, that's fine. There's, there's certainly like nothing wrong with cooking like that, but that wasn't my goal for getting into cooking. I knew that, um, from the start that like cooking was a way to, I have to get over the hurdle of being able to cook well and get people to enjoy my food. Um, and so there's just like, um, in order, in order for me to then, um, source in a way and move product in a way that it creates a more sustainable system. So, mm-hmm. you know, it's, it, for me, it, it came back to like improving Washington's food systems. And, and so then how cooking is a great way to do that. And how do I do that? It was like, well, okay, so I'll learn how to cook and that'll be the first step. Um, and so, so yeah, that was kind of the, that, that not having it in Seattle would have been very, counter to that because it was yeah. like for me it, if you're not plugged into the region here then then you're making the cooking about solely just you're improving which which again is not a bad thing but you know kill two birds with one stone so.
1: and there's also a reason though like why different cuisines are not only culturally based like yeah the human element but also regionally based yeah you know it's a geographical yeah influence right Usually. and that's where cult yeah cuisine is different here than you know i guess there's one question what is the pacific northwest cuisine i yeah. mean really it's a young it's very young. culture out here aside I, from the first nations people yeah the the native americans that were here so what what is that you it's, know it's, it's different, different than undefined. french food yeah or, you know yeah it, you know, you talked about uh, Japanese food yeah, earlier. Yeah, they exactly. have so much history behind yeah, those Yeah, the Japanese places. is a huge part of this
0: culture. Um, yeah, I don't think you can claim that the Pacific Northwest has an identity without, you know, the Japanese culture having a huge seat at the table. Same with, like, you know, the Filipino cultures, the Korean cultures have a really big um, presence here. You know, basically, like, anyone around the Pacific Rim, especially if they had anything to do with the fishing industries... They Mm -hmm. all gravitated towards this place, Um, and so that's you know it's Norwegians and Japanese and all all these all these fishing communities from around the world, Um, and they all converged here, and they all had a very very heavy hand in in shaping this place into what it's become. And so um, I don't think that the Pacific Northwest has a cohesive cuisine at all. Mm -hmm. (laughs) I mean, in general, there's not a ton of strong cuisines even throughout the U S in general. Um, but I would say that, um, I mean, even early on in my cooking, that was one of the questions I wanted to play a hand in defining is, is what is the cuisine here? And I don't think it'll ever be as defined as, you know, the Italian cuisine, you know, or, or, you know, French cuisine or any of those because, We no longer live in an isolationist world. And so you can't fully develop it in a way without it being morphed and shaped. But I also don't think that's a bad thing. I think that's part of our cuisine as well. How how much is it influenced by the food that we grow here? I don't think it's influenced enough by it. So I I, I think it should be very defined by that. Um, It gets a little bit into like the, um, I mean, you go deep down the rabbit hole and people are like, well what's like from Washington, quote unquote, because yeah. it's like, well, cabbage isn't from Washington originally, like there was no cabbage being grown here right. a thousand years ago, um, so it's not native to Washington. But, but to, you can grow just can about grow, anything here. Yeah, exactly, you can grow just about anything here. Um, and and to me, like the long term would be like anything that you can grow, quote unquote, sustainably in in the area, sustainably being like It, you know, it doesn't destroy the soils and you're able to have business models, you know, multi-tiered business models that are able to operate multi-generationally. And, you know, um, there's a consumer base that's willing to buy into that product for, you know, multi-generational again. Mm -hmm. So like that's to me is sustainable is this is basically is it a business that will work long term and, you know, businesses that just deplete the air, you know, there's, there's a reason the logging industry Took a nosedive eventually because it wasn't a sustainable model because they weren't able to turn it over fast enough. Right. And mm-hmm. so it's like eventually it was cheaper to go to Brazil or go to um, these other places. And so they're, they're, it's like now logging is very sustainable because they had to find that tipping point of can we do this? Can we, you know, plant as fast as we can tear down? And then once you can do that, then you've got a good business model. Um, and so figuring that out for the Pacific Northwest. Um, to me, it's, yeah, if it can be grown here, it's, it can be part of Washington cuisine. But whether it should be grown here, um, is, is always like the question, whether it's like a good utilization of the land mm-hmm. or whether it, you know, can be a good return. We've, it's like, should we be growing something that is, you know, like Dr. Jones is working on a, it's like, we shouldn't be growing commodity wheat on this side of the mountains because mm-hmm. the the soil's too fertile basically. So it's like if you're gonna grow a grain, it should be a specialty grain, a premium grain of some sort. Um and because otherwise it's like there's you know, there's whole there's single farms on the east side that are bigger than the entire Skagit Valley, right? (laughs) And so so it's like Explain
1: you said Doctor Jones. Who yeah who is that and this is yeah WSU Bread Lab? Yeah.
0: So this is Dr. Steven Jones. He Hmm. um is the head of the, the WSU Bread Lab, which is um, a plant breeding lab that's doing like traditional cross-pollination um, to come up with new wheat, barley, rye. I mean, they work bar- buckwheat varieties. They work on a little bit of everything. Um, and and then actually finding markets. So he he does the plant breeding, but then he also plays a hand in in finding the markets for those. And if the markets don't exist, then advocating... For those products and trying to create markets, um, so he's been fairly influential, and you can find, you know, he's been written up in everything from New York Times to you know, all all sorts of things. And so um, he he's I, I worked for him for a year, um, mm. helping establish the culinary director position um, and, and getting that, you know, trying to he's done incredible things for the bread world, and and it was how do we get this into the food world more because you know you can just eat wheat like you can, you know, there's, there's more ways to eat wheat than just in bread. Like you can make delicious porridges or, um, you know, there's lots of risottos or whatever else. So, and you were involved with that, Mm -hmm. but now you're
1: moving on to your own venture. Yeah. I know you kind of haven't launched that yet. Yeah. So maybe, maybe in a little bit, we'll bug you to see how much we can get out of you. Yeah. Absolutely. A little sneak preview maybe of what you, what you're up to. Yeah. Before that though, I want to go back. Yeah. Because, we should talk about it. you went through culinary art school yeah. and then the next stepping stone was Canlis restaurant. Correct. In yeah.
0: Seattle here. Yep. Yep. So Canlis. Um, so I actually even started at Canlis um, while I was still in school. Um, I ended up, I, I did like an internship for them uh, part time in the restaurant world. It was like 40 hours a week. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> uh, so after, after school um, I would, I would go to the restaurant and you know work until closing, you know, midnight or so and um and then on Saturdays I would do like double shifts essentially. Oh. <laughs> um and, well, Sundays or I'm sorry, Saturdays and Mondays I would do that. Um and then I think one or two other days a week I would go after after school and um was Working for free for them, <laughs> <laughs> which they always love. <laughs> well,
1: for people who don't know, describe what Canless is.
0: Yeah, so Canless is, oh, I don't know, around seventy years. I think it might be actually be their seventieth birthday this year. Mm. I can't, I can't quite remember. But you know, late sixties, early seventy. There's a 1950. They, um, they were a restaurant uh, founded by Peter Canlis. Um, it is. Um, well-established, they've always kind of done that fine dining, uh, you know, higher price point meals. Um, they've been very well respected for a long time. Uh, You know, there's the sheer longevity piece of it, but then they've also done a a decent job of, of always staying modern as well. And really as as food has kind of taken this turn from, you know, back in the eighties and nineties, it was fine dining was flying something from across the world. <laughs> and now fine dining is, I picked it from the garden that you just walked by as you came in. <laughs> um, and, and they it, it's been a total shift. And um, and so they've done a really good of job of modernizing with that. And well, so, they've
1: kind of championed that, like eating local. Yeah, yeah,
0: they have. Thing so, in fine dining in particular. Right, yeah. So originally um, they, they had multiple locations and one of them was in, um, I think it was... In Honolulu, but regardless, it was in the Hawaiian Islands, um, and they had um, they would actually fly Washington salmon to the Honolulu location, and then they would fly mahi mahi back. Mm. But it was, um, and so they they yeah eating locally, having but also like sourcing in these unique ways. That was a big part of of what they were doing, um, and. And yeah, especially in the last couple of chefs, um, Jason Franey and then now Brady Williams, uh, they were focused on, on more sourcing locally and, and especially when Brady came along, that was a, that was a really big change in focus As like, um, how do we, how do we source more locally and really champion what's going on here? Um, and so, yeah, I had been working, uh, under Jason Franey, uh, the, the previous chef, um. For a few months, and then he um, he left to a restaurant down in California, and there we were kind of without a chef for a little interim. There, they ended up hiring me on um, as a cook, and I started cooking there. Um, and then a little bit later, Brady Williams was hired and, and started with us, um, and and so I started as a cook underneath him, and then um, relatively quickly, just I I'd come in and was working on a lot of my own projects. Um, you know coming in a couple hours before my shifts and and working on dishes that excited me and and just trying to keep finessing those skills and and exercise that creative piece before which you just have to do when you're uh, well, you know before a 12-hour shift of of just like executing food straight it's like mm-hmm. it that's it's very um just very routine it's like it's nice to have a little creative outlet before right. that so i'd been working on that and he and I just—he's—he's he's very, very creative and very artistic. Um, and I have more of like the scientific approach to things. And so he and I just had a, a very symbiotic, um, relationship early on. And, um, and so he would often, you know, as, as I started working on projects, I was like, "Chef, chef, will you try this?" And he'd be like, "Okay, yeah, this is cool," but like I would add this ingredient and it would be like oh i never would have thought of that because that's like so obscure right yeah. and then like but, what what kind of stuff um oh man <laughs> yeah i just
1: love to have an example
0: you yeah, know? So, yeah so i can start to get hungry here is yeah right? yeah right <laughs> <laughs> well like i mean he had um you know it'd be like i'd be working on a dish with uh i don't know now you can never remember all the dishes now, <laughs> but you know it's like maybe you're doing like duck and and you've got like some classic sauces or like a classic pairing of you know some sort of like sweet cherry chutney or something mm-hmm. like that and and you you know you've got some sort of greens on there and then he tr- he tries it and he'll be like, you know what this needs like mole, which is like a traditional Oaxacan um, from like a southern Mexican style s- sauce that has like, Ground um, pumpkin seeds and chocolate and all these heavy spices and and like the farthest I mean, like you wouldn't traditionally think to you know yeah. pair duck with mole and cherries right and yeah. so um, I you know maybe had worked on this dish and gotten it to a point and he would you know come in and and basically you know. Say like, oh, it needs this and it needs that, and you know maybe you should add some some sorrel leaf oil or something like that. And so then I could go back and work on all of that and and you know make those changes and and you know find not only a way to make mole but maybe spice it up a little bit, do something a little different, put some flair on it, and then you know bring it back. And it would always be this dialogue of well add this, take this away, you know, and and we just had a good relationship because I was very you know always documenting always always making sure that everything was was very like linear and just step by step by step by step step and and he the scientist the scientist and he could just come in and and in a good way like rub the the you know wipe the the table blank and, and kind of uh throw in new things or um and so we uh we just had a, a good relationship that quickly he quickly promoted me to sous chef. And I ended up doing the, like running the menu development piece as a, you know, he would, it was the two of us. I mean, people d- often chefs don't have the luxury of always like being in the kitchen day in and day out because I mean, what, I mean, they're essentially CEOs. What is what people don't realize mm. is like we call them chefs, but they act more like a CEO. So it's like they've got to write schedules and do financials and all these other pieces. And that, that I'm sure all of I'm sure farmers are very familiar with it too, because <laughs> yeah. they're like, oh, you just get to spend time with cows all the time. They're like, I'm I I could be a CPA, you know? It's like yeah. if yeah. If, they, if they really you know because they have all these other skill sets. And it's like, well, they so he, it's um the chef always has to delegate a lot of these tasks to everyone else. And so I got to. I had the joy of doing the menu development, and then the fermentation, and and focusing um, a lot more on on like how fermentation can affect flavor and how it can make things delicious, and um, that was a really fantastic rabbit hole to dive down. And yeah. so, um, see, this
1: this fascinates me, yeah, <laughs> because.
0: I always wonder like
1: what what goes on behind the scenes? Yeah. You know, how yeah. do they come up with these new menu
0: items? Yeah.
1: And what does someone who's really creative in the culinary arts do in a kitchen like that? Granted, it's fine dining, so yep. there's gonna be probably more risks taken and mm-hmm. newer things tried than yep. your average restaurant. Right. But still you gotta you gotta, you know make sure that the menu items are available and that yeah. it's the kind of sort of the meat and potatoes of you're feeding the customers day in and day out. Right. When do you actually get to play around? So that's interesting. You say you were actually coming in early initially to yeah, do that. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Yeah. Until you kind of proved you, you have to be pretty darn good at this <laughs> to get to where you got.
0: Yeah. Well, I, I think it was, um, I mean, the it's one of those things that to, like when you're doing it, it doesn't seem like a new idea because, you'll be kicking, you'll, you'll do, you know, a hundred iterations of something. And, and each one of those hundred, there's just a tiny little step that doesn't seem like a genius idea, right? In between those hundred iterations, but then from going from zero to a hundred, someone coming in from the outside they're like they only see that as one giant leap they don't see that as a hundred tiny steps and so people they do they come in and they're like oh that's genius you are like it doesn't feel genius feels like a lot of work (laughs) (laughs) and so and and i think that's true in any industry you know it's it's like all these tiny little steps and and then all of a sudden people come from the outside and they're like, well, how did you ever think of that? And you're like, well, two years is how I thought of that, you know, like uh, of actively thinking about this problem and, and having 99 bad versions of this yeah. um, or incomplete versions at very least. And, and so that's, um, but yeah, so that's where I think, again, the scientific approach, because in science, you're not really looking for success. You're looking kind of for failure always. And and how mm-hmm. do I disprove my hypothesis? And, um, and you're you're constantly working against yourself in a way, um, and so that's my creative quote unquote process is, is really just about um, tearing down what I did yesterday and making it you know a little bit better in, on some level, and and then having um, good oversight um, from a chef that knows when when it's ready and so you know and not and then also just keeping you know the staff motivated and but yeah there's there is i mean the difference really from like a fine dining place that puts effort into something like that because um, it i mean it eats through a lot of time and every everyone who owns a business knows that time is money yeah, totally. <laughs> and so um uh, so just being able to have the support to say i mean it's also part of their brand like they of course have to invest in that because they can't just keep the same menu in a year in and year out like so they there it is out of necessity that they have to put that money in on some level but um but allowing allowing us to actually ha- take the time because it's like you would have to um you still have to run a restaurant yeah. while doing all of this and that's the difficult part <laughs> an answer to those people who are like
1: This meal cost me a hundred bucks. Yeah. I could go down to the store and buy this all for fifteen. What's well you're paying for all of that development. All of that development. And the art and the atmosphere and all those other things that go into that equation is huge. Absolutely.
0: Yeah, which which does make it like I mean, I that is why like on some level, to me, like the pinnacle of food development is is being able to mass produce that creativity uh, mm. on some level, and, and being able to say like, okay, I can create something that's well sourced and delicious, and um, all these other things, and I can produce a million of them, and it'll cost you five bucks. You know, like that to me is like, oh my gosh, that's incredible! Like the, I'm so glad I had the time to just like purely be creative and have the customer pay for it. Yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah. and, and then being willing, willing and excited about sharing that experience of like, this is truly cutting edge. Um, but now it's, uh, to me, the next step is like, okay, well, how do we produce a million of them? Because <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> that's how you can create that big impact.
1: What did it feel like though, being in that creative world? I mean, that's yeah. you're coming through culinary art school in Seattle, going to Canlis has yeah. to be pretty high on the list of where yeah. people wanna go, things that they sure. wanna do. And being recognized, then I know you've won awards for your involvement there. Mm-hmm. What did that feel like to start to get into that? Really get into that world?
0: Uh, it's exciting. It's fun. It's consuming is probably the best way to put it. Um, in a way, you know, consuming it in is both really exciting because it's all you think about all the time, but it's also, you know, draining on all the other areas of your life when you're consumed by this single piece. And so. Um, it is it's very fun and it's there's a reason it's like high burnout, is cause it just like it can it consumes everything and in for all the good and all the bad in that. Um <clears throat> but it's it's very exciting. Um it's it's a lot of work, honestly. And it's Absolutely. and um it's all it, it is difficult. Like we were talking before we hit record about like the necess- the necessity to Constrain creativity and and what that does, and I think that's so important. And um, I think that was, I mean, having to run a restaurant while being creative is yeah. is um, is one of those constraints. Um, and and the you know it's like, oh, what does this dish need? Does it need like more cinnamon in this mole or more pumpkin mm-hmm. seed? And then you know a cook comes up to you and they're like, "Chef Halibut didn't show up." and like i don't what are we gonna do (laughs) you know and you're like torn out of that world (laughs) of like you know it doesn't matter which of those because you need to find a source of halibut right now someone needs to drive across town and pick up halibut and get their car all smelly (laughs) because you know because we need it tonight um because it's on the menu and people are expecting it and so there's always just like on one hand it's like really fun to have those really creative moments and it's like you get you know one of those or two of those really great creative moments a month and then you just get the normal month's amount of like problems <laughs> of just yeah. life but that's also just i mean that's what you know that's what life is right yeah um so so it's um but it's it's definitely fun and it was a good team there i mean like the the sous chef team was fantastic and so there's i don't, I don't there was four of us five of us it varied from time to time but um you know kind of each with our area that we ran and 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 i got to you know kind of play point on some of the menu creative or on some of the menu development and fermentation and stuff like that but but it's a team effort absolutely and so um you it's fun to be part of that team where everyone is kind of obsessed and consumed with it (laughs) um not something that everyone gets to do. No, yeah. no. So it's That's very really cool. much like, you know, being part of a winning sports team or something like that, where it's it's contagious and it's fun, even though it's long. This is the Real Food, Real People podcast.
1: When Els and I talked, we had so much to cover that I've decided to share the second half of our conversation with you next week. So that will be the second part as we get more into farming and Nell's vision for what can happen with our food system here in the Pacific Northwest, um, how that relates to amazing food and what he plans to do next. As you could tell talking with him, he just has so much passion for this issue and wants to keep working, keep pushing the envelope of of new things um, to change the way we think about food here in our region. So please make sure to uh, pick up the second half of the conversation next week. As always, we'd love to hear from you. Dylan at realfoodrealpeople.org is my email address. Please follow us as well on Instagram, on Facebook, as well as Twitter. Just check out Real Food, Real People on those platforms. would love to have you share our content, subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and a bunch of other platforms we're on now, or even just drop us a line. Give us your feedback on the show.
0: The Real Food, Real People podcast is sponsored in part by Save Family
1: Farming, giving a voice to Washington's farm families. Find them online at savefamilyfarming.org.